0: Good evening everyone and welcome to the 32nd edition of Databytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, supported this month by the Legal Education Foundation. I'm Gavin Fregard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you in person and online this evening. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. <laughs> Previous attendees will know that eight is a very important number for DataBytes, and today completes our fourth cycle of eight events. 128 presenting slots since we started the series back in April 2019. Tonight's promises to be one of the best of the lot. In this week of record breaking temperatures, our four fantastic presentations around justice data make this the hottest ticket in town and the coolest place to be. And not just because of the air conditioning. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. For those of you on social media, it's hashtag IFGdatabytes and we are live tweeting from at IFGEvents. If you're here in the building, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password Institute123, all lowercase. As ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash Slido DB32. And if you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organize databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does data bytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about different data projects this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes, yes, just eight minutes, and then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 32nd data bytes. You can watch the previous 31, including last month's on the IFG website. Now, when the Legal Education Foundation approached us about this extra special bonus end of term databytes, I was delighted. Delighted they'd chosen us as the place to launch their new report. Delighted to be working with them again after the success of our previous Databytes together, number six, back in October 2019. Delighted, as a freelancer these days, to be earning some extra cash. <laughs> but there was one thing that worried me. I open every Databytes with some charts about current affairs. It being July, and with only two weeks between the previous Databytes and this one, I worried. Would there be enough political news for me to talk about? As I stood here two weeks ago, we were at an already record-breaking number of ministerial resignations, 17 in 24 hours, 35 in total under Boris Johnson. I did this chart as a joke in case more happened during the event. This is where we actually finished a record 47 resignations, 29 of them in three days, as many as Tony Blair experienced in 10 years and more than any other prime minister. 18 and a half hours later, Boris Johnson, our maverick prime minister, announced he would resign. In that time, the new chancellor, in post for a few hours, joined a delegation telling Johnson to quit and the new education secretary, became the old education secretary, resigning after less than two days, giving us four secretaries of state inside three years. Boris Johnson is expected to stand down on the 6th of September. By then, he'll have been prime minister for 1,140 days, overtaking Theresa May and James Callaghan. If we look to the left, not something the conservatives are currently doing, we can see this chart showing the tenure of all British prime ministers. Johnson sits in the bottom half. Also in the news, of course, the high-pressure competition where some of those watching wanted everyone to lose. But away from the Wimbledon men's final, it is, of course, the Tory leadership contest. (laughs) Wrong slide. There we are. We started with 11 candidates, the Graham Brady Bunch. Eight of them made it to the ballot, and one by one, the the weakest link has been voted out. Today we discovered that the final two to go to the Tory party membership will be Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Now there's been some criticism of what the candidates haven't been talking about. The NHS, housing, the climate crisis. But the thing nobody's talking about that nobody's talking about is the quality of the data visualisation coming out (laughs) of the campaigns. We like a good chart here at the IFG. We like pulling apart a bad one even more. Here's one from Rishi Sunak, apparently showing how he would beat Labour at the next election. Though it's not actually clear what those percentages mean, with no title or further explanation, or why only one of the other Tory candidates is included. That 37% also looks suspiciously large compared to the other bars. As indeed, it is. Rishi perhaps getting overexcited with the unfamiliar feeling of being the tallest. Then we have this from Penny Mordaunt, boasting about her being in second place, oddly. As generations of IFGers know, I'm a big fan of donuts, but less so donut charts, as they make the data difficult to read. A bar chart would have been best, but then we'd see more clearly that Mordaunt was in joint second with none or unsure. Even a pie chart would have been better, because at least we can read the angles from the middle more clearly. Instead, we have another leadership candidate abandoning the centre. Liz Truss put out this slightly naff infographic, but no misleading charts. Conclusive proof that she's left behind her past as a Liberal Democrat. Whichever candidate wins, the latest date on which they can hold a general election is the 24th of January, 2025. If they went full term and lost, they'd be prime minister for around 871 days, which would put them here in the all-time chart. If that happened, we'd be on five Prime Ministers in nine years, a shocking degree of political instability. (laughs) Turning to tonight and our blockbuster Justice League, first up will be Natalie Byram, Director of Research at our sponsor, the Legal Education Foundation, with a quick introduction, a nibble rather than a bite. Then we'll get into our presentations, starting with Jennifer Gisborne and Rima Patel from Ipsos UK launching the report, Justice Data Matters, building a public mandate for court data use. Then we'll hear virtually from Imogen Parker of the Ada Lovelace Institute on how we can get data right in the justice system. After that we will be Daniel Hoadley from Mishkon Durea on ground truth and governance of judgment data. And finally, we'll hear from Daniel Fleury from the Ministry of Justice with his reflections on data governance in the justice system. DataBytes will be taking a break for August. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 7th of September. We're only able to continue the series thanks to the support of our sponsors. We're hugely grateful tonight to the Legal Education Foundation and privileged that they're using the event to launch their new report. If you'd like to follow in their philanthropic footsteps, please email my colleague Pratesh. And if you'd like to follow in the footsteps of our fantastic presenters or know someone who should, please email me. That's more than enough from me and I'm delighted to hand over to Natalie.
1: Thank you so much Gavin, good evening and thank you so much for braving our melting public transport links uh, to be here tonight. We're lucky to be joined by a completely stellar panel this evening to launch our new report, Justice Data Matters, building a public mandate for court data use. So for this reason I'm not going to speak for long and I'm also quietly terrified that Gavin might set his timer on me, Um, (laughs) so anxious to avoid that. But I did want to take five minutes of your time to explain why the Legal Education Foundation commissioned this piece of work, why we think it's so important, and what we will do next. So we commissioned this work because the justice system is changing rapidly. Digitisation, which has been accelerated by the pandemic, is altering the way courts operate. Since 2017, the foundation has advocated fiercely that the ongoing £1.3 billion programme of court reform must be harnessed to improve the data we have about the justice system and the people who rely on it for protection and fair treatment. We've also called for and supported fundamental reforms to the way which judgments and decisions are collected and made available to the public. These arrangements, we believe, offer a vital opportunity to deliver open justice, improve transparency, and support legal education and evidence-based reform. Now, there's a danger that calls for better data can be dismissed as technical, dry, something that's boring and only of interest to researchers and technocrats. But that simply isn't true. The more you pay attention to where the data gaps are, whether they relate to victims of rape, unrepresented litigants, the treatment of domestic abuse victims in family court, or experience and outcomes of people who are disabled who have, or from minoritised groups, the more you see a pattern emerging. If you believe, as we do, that systems tend to measure what matters to them, then underinvestment in data becomes a symptom of a justice system that is underinvested in listening to or responding to what the public needs from it. This is both morally wrong and, in a system that derives its legitimacy from consent, actively dangerous. So we need better data, data that captures the voices and experience of those who rely on the courts to build trust, to deliver transparency, and to ensure that the law is upheld. To harness the benefits of data, individuals and organisations need to have access to it and be able to use it for research, for education, for advocacy, and for innovation. How should this access be managed and what uses should be permitted? experience from other areas of social policy, such as health and education, demonstrates that using data in ways the public consider to be unacceptable undermines trust and creates the conditions for a backlash against both data-driven technology and the department or agency that authorised its use in the first place. So what does the public think about how justice data should be managed and used? In spite of the vital importance of understanding the public's views and the rapidly evolving landscape of organisations keen to access justice data, we could not find a single study globally that had asked the public what they think about who should have access to the data held by the courts and which use cases are acceptable. When we set out to commission this work, this research, some people suggested that this lack of research was for a good reason that the public aren't interested in these issues and that in any case, in a system as complex as justice, it wasn't possible to ask these questions about these issues and get a meaningful response. Without wanting to steal too much of Rima and Jenny's thunder, I'm pleased to say that this emphatically was not the case. To paraphrase one of the people who attended the public deliberation sessions, it's very small-minded to say we don't care. No one has ever asked us. As to whether the answers given were meaningful, I would ask you all to judge for yourselves. We think that the report provides fascinating and nuanced insights, makes a number of really sensible recommendations that can be actioned immediately. And I'd encourage everyone here to read it fully. This report is a temperature check on where the public are now. And it's the start, not the end of a conversation that we are committed to continuing. Our key reflection from this work is that we cannot hope to solve the fundamental problem that we're seeking to address through improving data, that the justice system takes too little account of the experience and priorities of the public by subordinating their views and perspectives and wishes in our approach to data governance. Our next step is to commission further work to explore how we can build the voice of the public into justice data governance to develop an ongoing mandate for court data use. Moving from paternalism to participation will require a cultural shift on the part of the system, but it's a shift that must be made. If I can leave you with one reflection from this work, it's this. Justice data matters. Transparent and accountable data governance matters. And if we ignore what matters to the public when it comes to designing justice data governance, it's not just trust in data that is on the line, but trust in the justice system itself. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Natalie. I'm delighted to welcome to the stage Jenny and Rima.
2: Thank you. I'll hand it Great.
0: Thank you.
3: Our oh, slides up here.
0: Uh, yeah. You uh, knock it on a couple of slides. It should be. <laughs>
3: Amazing. Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Jenny and thank you so much, Natalie, for that introduction. Um, this is my first data bite, so i am decided to jump in at the deep end. Um, and I'm gonna start off by giving a very quick overview of our approach, because obviously we want to talk about what we found and what people said, mostly. Um, and then I'm gonna talk through some of the polling before we will talk through what people said in our workshops. Is this oh, sorry. Yes, it's here. Great, okay then. So very quickly, we wanted to take a mixed methods approach here. We wanted to get kind of at first a real um, baseline and broad um, scope of how people felt about it during using some online quantitative polling. So we got a nationally representative sample of just over 2,000 people, looked at how they felt about court, um, court records, how they expected them to be used, how much awareness they felt they had. And very importantly, how many, how much kind of control and limits they thought there should be on who was accessing court records and how. Um, So that really helped just to get a kind of a scope of where people are at now but crucially it really helped inform our design of the deliberative workshops to see what kind of things really stood out to the survey participants, what stuff needed to be explored a bit more, which groups we needed to make sure we included in our sampling for the deliberative conversations to see if some people were reacting differently to others and what things might need to be dug into during those discussions that aren't so easily delved into with quantitative polling. Um, the deliberative engagement, we had a sample of 30 participants who they joined us twice for two sessions of three hours. You can imagine that the beginning of that stage does involve quite a bit of work just to make sure that they understand the subject matter. Um, and th- are then able to have meaningful conversations once where they have been given very carefully, very carefully um, tuned information that is unbiased, that has been rev- um, overseen and reviewed by quite a diverse um, in expertise um, ex- executive advisory group, as well as the LEF, as well, um, to make sure that they were just getting that right. Um, great. And so I'll jump into what the polling says first and then Reema will pick up what happened in the discussions. So the most important finding here I've put straight up at the beginning and it answers that question is do the public care... Do they care to be part of the conversation? Do they want to be asked? And do they think that there needs to be limits and controls? And this is quite a a strong reaction from people who only engagement at this point is to have been part of a 10 minute online um, omnibus survey. 80% of people told us that it was important that there are limits and controls on who can use information from court records and how they can use it. And out of that 80% of people who thought it was important, 40% were saying it's very important. In fact, only 2% said it's not important at all. So I think that that is anything but apathy. And that really showed us that once we had put the materials together, got the right experts involved to guide a conversation, once we got people in a room and told them about the the nature of the conversation and gave them the tools they needed to really dig into it themselves, then that could only become less apathetic. And we got some really, really good um, insight from those discussions. And aside from um, feeling that it's important, clearly, and I'm not sure that, I don't think this would be surprising, but there wasn't very high levels of self-reported awareness about court records, how they were accessed, who they were accessed by, and how they were used. Um, So not only did they feel that they didn't really know much, most said that they either knew nothing or, or not very much about the information contained in court records, but they also felt that the government didn't necessarily keep them informed. Um so I think that was something really key to that that was followed through throughout the rest of the research as well, that there is a there is a desire to be told and there is a desire to be asked as well. Um, Levels of trust and comfort and different types of organizations involved as well. This is something that we probed on at quite a high level in the polling to kind of see what we wanted to explore in more detail in the deliberative as well. And we did ask about quite a different range of organizations, which is in the report you have. Um, But for the sake of my four minutes, there was quite a lot of um, discomfort when it comes to third party organizations, but this also really correlated with the fact that people said that they didn't feel as knowledgeable about how third party organizations would be accessing and using it. And generally there was a correlation between how aware people felt and how comfortable they felt. Um, this one has quite a lot, so I will um, keep this one brief, but also the, that level of comfort varied across different use cases that, people, that the data might be use, used for. So i started started with the most controversial ones first. Um, they, to understand more about which type of people or which type of communities are involved in court cases, this had the lowest level of comfort amongst people um, who were included in the polling. Um, And Again, that distrust in commercial companies um, came up again to help commercial companies develop products and services to be used within the justice system that had quite a low level of comfort, which is obviously quite vague and really set us up to dig into that in the workshops. Um, There were some consistent themes for how comfortable participants felt about different uses of court records compared to how much trust respondents had in each type of organisation as well. And um, there were also some um, themes between different socioeconomic groups, which is particularly relevant where those economic groups might be the, the, the um, focus of certain initiatives using court records. So we knew that we needed to include a real diversity in that in our sampling for the deliberative workshops where we could really pull out the nuance of that. Great, Great. thank you. That was very high speed for the polling. but over to Rima for the workshops.
2: And It's going to be pretty snappy, um, Gavin Star. and uh, of course uh, that, that fell down, but I think it's still working. Is that correct? Yeah, lovely. So um, three key points um, in terms of deliberative workshop that indicated the next step. The first is around, as Jenny mentioned, strong public support for robust governance and oversight of commercial use of court record data, really clear theme, not just in polling, but also in the workshop. Um, The other point relates to transparency about access requests and data use. That's central to maintaining public confidence. And this relates to uh, the importance of independent and transparent oversight um, and and the need to demonstrate how government organisations will have that in play. Um, There's also communication from the government around the decisions being made by the government in relation to making court record data available for reuse. So that's also absolutely essential in terms of uh, a next step. And in terms of um, access arrangements, so uh, provisions in place to access um, data that's being used, key theme is about how um, the applicants and applications of data that can deliver Justifiable public benefit need to be a priority so and, and there's a really interesting point which isn't just about public benefit it's a very prevalent narrative but about justifiable public benefit. Um, and uh, the deliberative discussions explored what a justifiable public benefit would be, um, the range of views shared. Um, court backlog being tackled, uh, lower costs, um, but also the importance of ensuring that quality and fairness in the justice system, um, that equities are addressed through the use of data. And around that, it's also key that there's rigorous evaluation and ongoing monitoring of that uh, work or uh, the development of products and services built on court record data. Um so those were the key themes um, that the deliberative engagement uh, workshop illustrated, but the key point there relates to that strong public support for robust governance and oversight of commercial use of court record data. Public would like to see that. Thank you very much.? You. Shall I say it? Yeah.
0: Perfect timing and uh, very impressive to get all of that report into eight minutes. Um, for those of you watching us online, if you'd like to ask questions of Remer and Jenny, please go to bit.ly slash db32 if you're not already on the slido. Uh, for those of you in the audience, you can put your hand up shortly when I invite you to. I'll come to the studio audience first, um, wait for the microphone to come to you. Feel free to tell us who you are and where you're from, though do remember we are on the record. And if you could please stand up when you ask a question uh, for this first round of questions as well, that would be great. Um, Please do keep them snappy as uh, you will count towards the eight minutes, which will start as soon as the first question is asked. So, who would like to put the first question to Rima and Jenny? Got a question
4: down. Hi there, I'm Sophie Walker. I'm the founder and CEO of Just Access. Um, I'm also a practicing barrister. Uh, this is super fascinating. I'm a little worried about where this leaves like, case law development <laughs> and the tenets of how judges decide cases. I'm not sure to what extent was the public in your research set out that how judges decide cases is by looking at similar cases because 26% were unsure or just had discomfort around Mm. judges looking at other cases.
3: I think I was quite surprised actually there were quite a few participants who started referring to case law. They were especially concerned that about actually that case law might kind of stagnate if there are kind of efforts or initiatives that might divert people away from seeking justice in court, if, if people kind of use this data to advise people maybe to settle or go into mitigation instead, that that might actually kind of stagnate the kind of cases that are coming to courts and stop things from progressing in that way. I hope that that makes sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, I'll stay in the room. Who would like to ask
5: the next question? Down the front. Hi, I'm Madeline Vanoss. I work for HMCTS um, in the new data access services team. Um, My question was around, it feels like there's a bit of a catch-22 in that we don't understand the reuses well enough to uh, intelligently regulate because we're not doing large-scale reuse, but public trust would be lost with reuse without regulation. So I wondered if you could say something about how this kind of work or other research might bridge that gap? Uh, to what, like what, what do we protect against when we don't really understand the downstream uses properly?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question, but my quick takeaway before Jenny comes in on this is that it's not necessarily a tension there. I, you can have both in place and indeed both. Are mutually reinforcing. Do you want to expand on
3: that? Yeah, I think using kind of like the language of participants, which is ultimately what it's, this report does, is not um, kind of speaking, yeah, it's just speaking the participants' language. It isn't about kind of foreseeing everything that needs to be regulated when it's new. It's about sl- going slow to, to let, learn with this kind of thing and, and full transparency as well as bringing the public in to hear them and hear what they think when things do progress so it's kind of keeping it slow keeping it transparent and bringing the the public along with you to maintain that consent and that mandate as well
2: and legitimacy can improve outcomes and improved outcomes also improves legitimacy if i'm using academic terminology there but i think that there's a feedback loop there
0: Mm, yeah yeah Brilliant, thank you. A reminder, if you're watching us online, you can use the Slido uh, to put questions to our speakers, and it's bit.ly slash Slido DB32. Uh, I'm going to stay in the room because the quality of the questions has been so high so far. Uh, Who would like to ask the next one? Yes. Uh, wait for the
6: microphone. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Hello. Uh, my name's John, and... I spent 50 years in conveyancing, so I do nothing at a fast pace. (laughs) When I left college, I couldn't face going and working in a solicitor's office, so I took a job as a researcher with WHICH, and the question or the subject that they had more requests to investigate than any other was conveyancing. So when you think something is boring like that, you think it must be pretty bad to have attracted that sort of demand. But the problem that we have is not just that things are shrouded in a sort of religious aspect, but it has been done for centuries with a monopoly by a cottage industry. So there is no consistency down to the point that people who buy flats with a lease on it don't get told that it's leasehold. Can I ask
0: you to get to the question as we're running out
6: of time, sorry. Right, I'm glad you're coming on to that one. But there is a great need for research and for a taxonomy of what information is available for people and the research as to which people want and which they should want. The information they are given is usually to prevent the practitioners being sued for negligence. That's and that was does. a key theme as mm-hmm. well up in, right, in so in the I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yes, uh, that was a key theme that came up in the discussion, the, the need for clarity, but also clarity about the types of data that were being used and that. Yeah, and of course, the, the taxonomy point is really key. I think we might want to move to another question. Yeah.
0: Um, who else uh, would like to ask a question?: We've got one right down here at the front.
7: I haven't had a chance to read the report in full yet, but did you get a sense that um, the people you polled were thinking more about data coming from lower courts uh, that were dealing with kind of more everyday legal matters or uh, higher up the court structure uh, for kind of more legally significant matters?
2: So so that wasn't really the distinction. Um, It was more um, in terms of the conversation that we explored through the deliberative processes the range of different types of court cases um, that, that was explored rather than, um, if you think about it, if you're a member of the public, it's not that relevant to you whether it's uh, lower down or higher up, what's, what's more important is what what's information is in here and that yeah. relates to where it sits in the civil system as well as other parts of the justice system.
3: And I think the one thing that's really clear is this, this research has always been the beginning of a conversation, so where there are those distinctions, deliberative is really helpful for that because if we think they wouldn't get it straight away, you've got that time to give them the information they need to be able to pick apart what we want them to pick apart. And we're hoping that other conversations like that can flow on from this one because we want to start some dialogue with the public. So these questions are helpful for a spot and where we can do that as well.
0: Brilliant, thank you. We've got time for one more question, which I've got down here at the front.
1: Thank you so much. Um, Reema, you've done a lot of work on public deliberation on really complex topics like genomics and also biometrics. Um, To go back to Sophie's question, um, how possible is it to get meaningful views and assessments from the public when they have imperfect knowledge of how technology operates?
2: I think tremendous, um, tremendous possibility. Um, If there is an assumption that they don't have Enough knowledge, and I think that assumption needs unpicking. And the importance is that um, it's uh, it's not just technical knowledge that's required to make important and impactful. Judgment calls. Um, So you need lived experience, and these conversations enable us to bring lived experience in dialogue with technical and policy experience, so that we can make the best of all of that impact and importance. And and that's meaningful public dialogue, but it's also meaningful and useful uh, policy that's in alignment with people's values, norms, expectation. Uh, It comes back to that point, which is about legitimacy. Um, so, uh, people need to have confidence. There needs to be a mandate for that use of data. But also, um, it won't work unless people have confidence. So, it, it working um, and a mandate for, for the use of data or for any complex issue
3: is key. One very quick thing. Also, a lot of the insight that you get is from the questions people ask when they don't think they know everything or at least think that they have imperfect knowledge, because that tells us a lot of questions that we wouldn't necessarily think to ask and shows what people are curious about as well, which is re- always interesting as well.
0: Really. Well, Rima and Jenny, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well done. And uh, do make sure that you take a copy of the report uh, before you leave tonight as well. Um, while Jenny and Rima go back to their seats, we're going to join uh, from from the the ether, uh, Imogen Parker from the Ada Lovelace Institute. Hi, Imogen.
8: Hi. Um, Hopefully I'm up on screen with you now. Thank you so much for inviting me today. And I'm so sorry not to be there in person with such a great panel. Um, I'm afraid climate change and British trains slightly scuppered me on travelling from Bristol today. So apologies. I want to speak to the question of how we get data right in the justice system. And Um, contextualise this brilliant piece of research that's just been presented with some of the wider research we've done at ADA, both thinking about the context of what we know about public attitudes to data governance um, in other areas, but also some reflections on where we are when it comes to data in the justice system and how that might compare with other public services, for example, and the ways that government use data. So I hope that uh, a slide should be appearing on screen. I can see Gavin, so he's nodding. I will carry on now. Um, So I'm gonna be drawing heavily on public perspectives and participatory research. This is a really cool methodology at Ada. We've done it in lots of different spaces and particularly um, uh, our most recent publication called Who Cares What the Public Think? And I should reference Aidan Pepin, the lead author on that, which was a meta-analysis of 40 recent studies about UK public attitudes to data in recent years. But I'm also gonna be making reference to some of the research that we've done on data governance in specific contexts, which goes beyond, can include, but also goes beyond public deliberation to think about legal mechanisms, to think about ethics and accountability practices, for example, and governance more widely. And I will try to keep my comments high level to stick to the eight minutes, but I will tweet links to the research in case anyone wants to dive into the details. So first, what do we know about public trust and data governance? I want to make a framing point first, which is that public trust really matters. Back in 2015, the Royal Statistical Society identified a data trust deficit. So where trust in institutions to use data consistently scored lower than their general trust. People trust the NHS more than they trust the NHS with data, for example. And in the intervening years, we've seen a slew of ethical principles, we've seen new regulation, new government policies, but we've also seen a steady drumbeat of public disquiet about how data is being used. And I'm sure for a data by audience, there's no need to go into any details about A-level algorithms or the successful legal challenge to the visa algorithm or Francis Hogan's recent testimony on Facebook. But it's clear that they have triggered both greater public understanding, but also concern about data. And I think it's important to note, we've seen that actually translate into action as well. So I think a really salient example is GPDPR, where we saw over 3 million people withholding their health data, even though because they were worried about how it would be used, even though the NHS is one of the most trusted institutions, the health sector is one of the most mature public services when it comes to responsible data sharing, and health is consistently seen as an area where people see societal value in data and AI. So looking to justice, I just wanted to kind of reiterate that it feels like trust will be of paramount importance. If trust is lost in how information about justice is being used, it could dissuade people from using the justice system. And if data is misused, it could undermine faith in the outcomes of the justice system. Now, to the key findings, particularly but not exclusively from this meta ravine. Firstly, we have consistently found the public want better and more data regulation and governance. They want to ensure their rights and interests are protected, that privacy is preserved, and that the power of large technology companies and other data controllers are held to account. And that's not something they're seeing enough of at the moment. Secondly, the public do want data to be collected and they want data to be used for innovation but they expect that to be ethical, responsible, and focused on public benefit. So in other words, it needs to be well-managed, it needs to be considered, it needs to be evaluated, rather than opened up to enable innovation for innovation's sake. Third, people want clearer information about data practices and how to enact their rights. How do you access redress if something goes wrong, for example? And it feels like where Justice are at the moment thinking about their data infrastructure, that's something they could build in from the start. Um, Fourth, trust is context specific. So who is using data, what they're using it for, why they're using it and how they're using it can be more important than what data it is, what data point it is we're talking about. And I wanted to just add to that to say what we found repeatedly is that people's own context also colours their comfort with how data is used. So for example, our work on biometrics Privacy concerns are felt very differently when it comes to individuals who are already in communities that are over surveilled by police, for example. So we've got to think about the average person, but we've also got to think about groups that might be particularly affected or particularly concerned. And when it comes to justice, people might feel a situational vulnerability or particularly exposed if information becomes available elsewhere. And then one concluding point, which is really drawn from our experience working with different parts of government like the NHS and the Geospatial Commission. When well designed, public deliberation can contribute to better policy and practice on data. That's partly evidence. Public engagement brings lived experience, it brings crowd wisdom, deliberative reasoning, public attitudes, which should help you understand problems, concerns, identify opportunities, solutions, signal what good looks like, basically, when it comes to data. But it also builds in legitimacy. It enables you to say, what we're doing with your data is something that we think is serving people and society. And it's that engagement that can give you that sense of legitimacy. The hope, of course, is that might protect against future public backlash. So what you're creating here is a more sustainable approach, a more stable approach to what you do with data. Now, I wanted to just spend my last couple of minutes reflecting on where we are in the justice system when it comes to data and how that might compare with other public services. So the justice sector needs to develop an approach for data that works for the whole justice system. And today we're really focusing on those using or those potentially using the justice system. But we're also going to need to make sure it works for those delivering justice. We've got to map the different actors in the ecosystem and think about the data flows there. And I wanted to pull out a few points I think we really need to consider to get this right. This is not an exhaustive list. There's lots more we should be considering to get this right. But here's a few. Firstly, I think open justice is something we need to talk about, but open justice in a digital age. So openness, of course, is a fundamental, normal principle in justice. And that means we are in a very different place when, it, when you think about justice compared to something like health, which, of course, has an absolute emphasis and expectation of confidentiality built in when you're considering what to do with justice. And, of course, in a pre-digital age, openness allowed for important cases to be reported on. But in the digital age, with the possibility of digitization of court records, of bulk downloads, of technology scraping that data, of powerful search engines, open justice could have more further reaching consequences, information might be shared more widely and it might be shared more permanently. So how someone interacts with the justice system might be something that comes up if you search for them when they apply for jobs, for example. And we've got to work through in advance and get right what impact that might have on individual and societal outcomes and willingness of people to engage with the justice system. The second point I wanted to pull out is, and it's digital transformation, journey sounds quite cheesy but I couldn't think of a better way of saying it. Just picking up on Natalie's point, we're now in the midst of this billion pound programme of digital reform which has really brought into question what data should be collected and how it should be used, by whom and there's huge opportunities there for transparency, for monitoring, for understanding the justice system and I think Natalie really perfectly put forward the case of why getting data collection right is so important. But in just a few years we've gone from a system that was really data poor i suppose even locally held or paper based in some instances to having to consider the consequences of predictive tools of scrapable data so there's a question about curation which i think is really important a question about data gaps thinking about what mechanisms you need to consider and address these societal problems the third point to raise where and when datafication is appropriate so Participants in this study raised concerns about the kind of datification of justice, perhaps reducing the subjective and rich information um, to numbers or flattening the reliability of insights. But we've also got to look at that from the perspective of people delivering justice. In many different public services, we've had the introduction of choice and competition agendas. We've had bodies like Ofsted, CQC there's been a growing expectation that people might use information to shop around for better services and that services might be improved with that information and that shopping around. Of course, that's really not how the justice system has operated to date, it's been very separate to that. So opening up data injustice might change the way people interact with the justice system. And you might see that as undermining the authority of the system or enabling gaming, you might see that as democratising the sort of expert information at the moment the law firms can hold and demonstrate, so it's something that needs careful thought. Now, I can't see the screen, but I think I'm probably out of time, so just my final point, yes, I can see Gavin nodding, my final point is on power. So um, data needs to always be considered in the context of power, and power is of paramount importance when it comes to justice. of course justice has power inherent within it the system can make decisions that have these huge life-altering effects um but we also need to think about the power that sits within those that can afford to access legal advice and law firms so how is data going to interact with those power imbalances is it going to rebalance power is it going to entrench power or create new bases of power and that feels like something we need to really have built in from the start as we contemplate how getting how we should get data right I will leave it there, thank you.
0: Thank you Imogen. So just a reminder to everyone watching online, you can use the Slido to put your questions to Imogen. If you're not already on the Slido page, it's bit.ly slash Slido DB32. Um, I'll come to the studio audience here as well, but I'm going to abuse my power as chair. Ask the first question uh, this time around Imogen, which is um, based on the reflections that you've just shared with us and all of the evidence on public attitudes from Ada, from um, Ipsos and LEF and and others. Where should we go next and what do the actors within the justice system and civil society need to do to ensure we get justice data right?
9: That
8: million dollar question, thanks Gavin. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, And I think what you know, as, as no one will be surprised, I think public deliberation is such an important tool for this in the context of research. Um, as you've gathered, I'm an advocate for that type of um, methodology to complement others. But I want to put forward a provocation, which is thinking about um, potentially conducting more research, but also potentially moving beyond public deliberation as a research tool to think about whether it could act as a form of governance in and of itself. So as a standing structure for governance. I'm not saying that will be necessary in this context, but it's something worth exploring. And I'll just give a few examples of areas where we as ADA have ended up recommending public participation as a form of standing governance. So um, we ran a three-year program on biometrics. There's lots of things we concluded and called for mainly in the kind of legal space, but one the aspects was looking at proportionality assessments, deciding whether or not biometrics should be used, not just could be used. And for that, what we're arguing for is that affected groups are built in to the working with the regulator to decide what a good proportionality test should look like, what minority perspectives might need to be considered, how can you ensure that you are making a decision about a particular use in context that considers the needs or unique experiences of different groups. So that's one example. Um, A second example also similar based on our work on regulation in Europe. Um, There's a lot, I won't go into the details, but there's a lot of AI regulation that is being pushed into a technical standard. So you can use this AI if it ticks off these boxes, if it's safe, like a washing machine might be safe. But of course, to decide that, you've got to think about things like societal impact and fundamental rights. And our view is you've got to find the right mechanisms of getting representatives into setting those technical standards so you can account for things like human rights. So again, we're doing research there to say, how do you get representation and how do you set up the right structures to ensure when you're setting technical standards, you've got the right perspectives in the room. And then a third example, which is probably of most relevance. Last year, we worked with the NHS um, they have something called a medical imaging database, so a stack of medical images, and they asked us to pilot how to under, or develop a pilot for how to take an algorithmic impact assessment, how to consider whether or not you should share data with private companies, with researchers, um, and to develop and train AI on. So we developed an algorithmic impact assessment. It's got seven different steps, but a key stage in that was a participatory workshop to assess access in context and use that as one of several forms of evidence that could then go to a decision making panel so when they're assessing it's not just things like technical use and others but there is actually that public voice built in as a mechanism for governance so maybe that's not the right step for justice but I think that would be an interesting kind of provocation to lead on the table do we need to take public voice beyond research and actually into governance itself
0: excellent thank you um who would like to ask Imogen the next question Uh, we've got one here towards the front. I'll come to you next. Oh, yeah.
5: Hi, I'm Alice Harrison from Offences. Um, uh, when you were talking about the open justice, um, you mentioned something about permanent data and presumably temporary data. At the, uh, where is the distinction from that? Is it very clear which data is which? How, you know, could, could you just give me a few words around that because I'm not very sure.
8: Yeah, of course. So what I was thinking there is um, if if digitized court data becomes, for example, very easily accessible, it can become scrapable. If it becomes a record that starts floating around on Google, for example, it's very difficult then to say that should be temporary data. That might be a permanent record that is associated with someone in a public way. So I was thinking about um, really when you have digitized data in light of you know, in light of the search engines that we've got, in light of everything else, you're building a system um, where you can lose control or you need to think about that data as being very easily accessible and potentially permanent, permanently accessible in a way that, of course, you have less control of than you do if you're sitting on a Paper-based data record, which you can kind of give out or hold back. So it's really just thinking, but you know, as you open up data, have you really thought through the wide-ranging consequences? Have you thought about the long-term questions or consequences that need to be well managed to make sure it's working for people?
0: Thanks. We've got a question down in third row, and then I think we've got another one. I'll come to
10: you next. Thank you. Um, My name is Deborah Quay. I'm the Justice First Fellowship Manager at the Legal Education Foundation. Um, and my question is just in terms of uh, the justice system itself and thinking about the digitalization that's happening in a lot of different uh, areas, uh, particularly, for example, immigration with the biometric systems that are coming into place, um, partly some of the frustration with data gathering is the fact that it has to be done um, over and over again for the same information, despite assurances that once it's been given, it, it will be on the system. And so I was just wondering, with uh, experience and your working with other public services like the NHS, are, are there any good reflections that you've come across that we could transfer to the justice system to try and make that process of collection a bit easier? And maybe that will help in some of the trust that, that
8: people feel about the data that's being collected. That's a really great question. And I think it goes to the heart of thinking about how do you design a data system that isn't just about privacy although that's important that does lead to things like data being repeatedly collected or not shared but actually starts from the perspective of what do people in society want out of this what information would help them manage their own interactions with the justice system for example and what we found in other contexts like with local authorities you know, um, anybody that's had to battle different bits of local authority systems or have a chronic health condition, for example, and are moving between different um, different sorts of services, repeating case information, people that have repeated interactions with the police and have to, you know, victims of domestic abuse, for example, that have to, in every interaction, retell potentially traumatic stories. I think there is a good case, you know, pending further work with the public for saying sometimes data sharing is good, it's what people want to happen. It's about making sure that it's done in a way that's well-governed, it's done in a way that people see as legitimate and done in a way where people say, yes, I understand this. This is about helping me move through and understand the system. So I I definitely think um, what we've found from other public areas, people don't want data to be shut down. They want it to be used in the right way and they want it to be shared in a way they feel comfortable with.
0: Thanks. Forty-five seconds left, so very quick question uh, down here in the third row, and a very quick answer would be great. I'll
4: um, actually, Imogen and I were um, roommates at university, <laughs> so I'm going to introduce as my third bio for the night. Um, the issue with um, legal is that court judgments are already Googleable; they're already scrapable. In a way, the horse has already bolted. Right? We have Bailey, which doesn't have great firewalls. We have. Versions of judgments all over the website. We have private paid for judgment websites. So we're not starting from scratch in a way the NHS was. We've already, we're already 40, 50, 60 years down the line. So how would we refine what you're saying for the justice issues in the justice sector?
8: Very good question. I would um, almost like to call Natalie up to the stand because she's so much closer to where justice is currently and isn't available. Um, but it seems to me at the moment you don't have a comprehensive and easily accessible access to justice, case law or other sorts of data. So and I'm speaking as a you know former researcher on the justice system that experienced a lot of pain trying to understand just basic administrative data about who's moving through the justice system, what pathways they are, what outcomes there are for different people. So I would say there's still um, a lot of gaps in terms of understanding the justice system from the outside I don't think the horse has fully bolted I think this is a really good moment for thinking actually how do we set up the right infrastructure and make the right decisions but it feels like that wider data sharing is still fairly novel or at least that's my sense in justice compared to some other sectors but I will defer to, I know there's other people speaking who are from the justice sector more directly and I'm sure might be able to pick that that point as well
0: brilliant well Imogen thank you very much indeed thank you Uh, we go now to the first of our two Daniels this evening, uh, so Dan. OK. Um,
7: just want to check which way this goes. Don't start the clock yet. <laughs> okay. Um, right. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm really bad with timing, so I put basically everything I'm going to say on one slide, which I'm going to say now. Um, I'm going to focus on judgments. So there's lots of different types of court data. Judgments is one of them. That's where I'm going to focus, and I'm going to try and develop very quickly two uh, submissions to you, I guess. Number one is that judgments given in courts of record, so courts that combined other courts and you know, including itself in some cases, should be comprehensively captured. Um, and that open source of data, so Bailey and the National Archives, uh, are shown to be incomplete, in some cases considerably so, when compared to their uh, commercial counterparts. And the cause that I diagnose is um, poor collection of extemporary judgments, which I'll talk about again in a minute, uh, and that this is really important in this context because predictive applications built on incomplete data present very real risk. The second point um, I'm going to make is that the transactional license regime in the National Archives uh, fine case law uh, service is a very good start to data governance over judgments but there are problems that we need to think about very carefully Um, and that if we don't uh, think about it soon it's going to lead to uh, gaps in transparency which might ultimately undermine uh, legitimacy. So and very quickly just to pick up Sophie's point this um, there are existing publishers of judgments. So on the left in the orange we have commercial suppliers uh, who jealously guard their collections, it's very hard to scrape them. In the middle we have a freemium provider where I used to work uh, and then on the right we have Bailey who until Easter were the de facto official provider of judgments uh, and then after Easter when the National Archives launched this, fine case law service that became in effect the official provider of judgment uh, data and I suppose a quick uh, interest to declare I'm leading one of the teams that's building part of their publishing system. So the context for the points I'm going to try and pull out are that I'm currently reusing court data. Um, I do this quite often as part of my job and at the moment I'm doing a piece of work with um, Joe Thomason at York Law School and Cassie Summers Joe's, where we're looking to see to what extent we can use machine learning to support empirical studies of judicial review. And the motivation came really from the uh, review into judicial review and this kind of inverse relationship between empirical research and uh, the government's positions on, on judicial review. Uh, we are using a data set which was given to us by a commercial publisher, VLEX Justice which consists of 5,300 uh, judgments from the administrative court given between the beginning of 2015 and the end of 2020. And we've got that in uh, structured XML, which makes it very easy for us to work with. The very first thing we did uh, when we got the data set was we looked to see how many of the judgments in our data set were available on Bailey. And this bar plot shows um, the, the distribution of the quantity of judgments per year. The the height of the bar represents the total number of judgments in the VLEX data that we were given. So in 2015 around about 1300 judgments. The the grey section represents how many of those we found on Bailey. So in 2015 and actually throughout the the successive years up until the year of the pandemic uh, we found that roughly um, Bailey was missing about 45% of uh, the judgments that were on VLEX. And um, that is consistent with some earlier work I did in a personal capacity back in 2018, where I looked at the similar thing with the criminal division, which found that uh, Bailey um, had just under a fifth of the judgments that were on justice uh, for the same year. So the the problem here, the cause of this, I say, is this really complex uh, diagram which shows the judgment pipeline. And what's happening is this is, this is pre launch of TNA. Uh, on the bottom row, we have the flow that governs the publication of judgments that were given uh, extemporary, read into the record rather than handed down. And if you look to the right, and hopefully Gavin publishes these slides so you can look at these with more time, uh, those judgments never actually find their way to Bailey. And arguably, now, uh, after the launch of the National Archives, the situation is the same the extemporary judgments actually don't make it into Bailey or the National Archives. So we've got this kind of massive gap um, in in judgments which is causing this skew between commercial uh, publishers who can buy those transcripts in and Bailey and the CNA which which don't have them. Uh, So um, that that leads me to basically make make the statement I've already said. There's hopelessly incomplete data uh, in open sources and that will cause problems if people use it. Um, Governance and reuse, just really quickly. Um, The National Archives, I I suppose with the support of HMCTS and MOJ have made a really good first stab of trying to deal with some of this in the open justice licence which lets you do pretty much anything so long as it doesn't involve computational analysis. If you're going to be doing computational analysis that requires a transactional licence which needs to be applied for. And in effect, this is the license that governs bulk downloads of judgment data. Computational analysis isn't defined and it's a ridiculously broad term and could on its face include any number of uses ranging from counting the number of judgments over a period of time. I just showed you a plot um, which does that. Identifying cases of legislation in judgments using something very deterministic like a regular expression through to doing big arguably scary stuff like pre-training large language models um, or to go to the research that we're doing with um, York Law School identifying the grounds for review in judicial review judgments. So this isn't necessarily a problem but it's just important to recognise that this term is galactically wide. It catches a lot and um, the key test it seems is um, does the proposed use of the data jeopardise or is likely to jeopardise the proper administration of justice which which is I think on its face is a completely reasonable thing to want to defend but when you begin to dig in it really actually gets quite knotty. Transparency and legitimacy are at risk of kind of being really depleted quite quickly unless we can get to grips with a selection of I suppose this is this is just for starters others might think of a few more, but but who's making a decision about whether or not a given use is likely to jeopardise the administration of justice? On what basis are decisions being taken? Um, How are decisions to permit or or allow a particular use communicated to the public, if at all? Um, How does National Archives determine how to escalate applications to the Ministry of Justice? Are there specific uses that should be restricted from the outset? Are there things that we just don't want people doing that we know now that we could just say, you're not doing this? Um, And what other values, other than the defense of the administration of justice, do we want to promote uh, and safeguard? And I suppose really importantly, what what are the consequences of breach how is the transactional license um, to be enforced? And we have to ask all these questions against the broader background that I tried to make in point one, that all of this is happening in respect of incomplete data. Uh, so with that, um, I've made my points actually, I can skip on to this one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you very much Dan. you, Bang on time. Um, Again, if you're joining us online, you know what I'm going to say. It's bit.ly slash slido db32 if you want to put any questions and you're not already on the slido. Um, Again though, I'm going to go to um, the audience in the room first. Who'd like to ask the first question of Dan? Right down here at the front.
2: I thought the list of um, applications of computational analysis was really interesting. Are there any other applications you think might be within scope?
7: There are loads. Uh, So, I mean, the one I didn't put on the slide was uh, predicting case outcome, which I think is a use that uh, you picked up on in your report, understandably. It's an interesting one to me because of all the possible uses that anyone stands to actually have any success with, that is one that is so far off, it's so difficult to do um, that I can understand why people gravitate to thinking about that one, but it's really, really far off in a practical sense. And I think uh, to some degree, I think we are paying the price of letting too many early stage startups about seven, six, five years ago, make claims that at the time they hadn't really developed for and it's shifted people's thinking in this this really unhelpful direction where we're missing uh, more simplistic but possibly even more insidious uses such as blacklisting in employment.
0: Thanks. Uh, We've got a question over there
9: i 'm Billy a machine learning practitioner and just really interesting on the transaction license, uh, license I have two questions so like can do you imagine something like people using a commercial company like Facebook doing the app review kind of process where you submit a use case and then you know the per person can look at your application, the source code run that, and do all that Would that help in this process or you think about something? More about you know how do we better govern this transactional license, and the second question is like actually looking at your system diagram, that's really good flow chart. I've never seen that before, really helped me understand the whole you know how the data flows. Sounds like even if we put down a transaction license, we can regulate that, have governance on that part. There's still loads of data flowing to those private companies. How do, they, how do we then regulate their distributing these data massively to other people? For example, you guys got the research, um, the 4,000 uh, administrative core data from the private company. How, do they, how are they regulating now, today? So, yeah, those are my two questions. I'm glad you like my flow charts, because they, they were drawn... <laughs> They were drawn in
7: 38-degree heat, so... Um, <laughs> um, I actually, I'm not sure um, I'm necessarily the best person to, to, to answer that question. I think I'm coming to you really as a person that is actively using court data. Uh, I, it's my job to use court data. I do things with it, and uh, I want more governance. I want to understand which, what are the parameters I'm allowed to move in because it wouldn't be good for me to overstep the boundaries and at the moment I'm having to kind of feel my way in the dark so that doesn't address your question directly um, but the transactional license is an important thing to get right and for us to understand um, how applications how many applications are being made who they're being made by which ones are being allowed and which
0: ones are being refused thank you uh, we've got I'll take the question there and we'll come to you
1: Historically not that many cases were actually written down and we don't reference all of the cases from the 19th century and so on. Are you concerned at all about as we get better at digitalising things just everything being documented even if it's not that significant or high quality of a judgment?
7: So where I used to work at the Incorporated Council of Law Reporting that was the mantra. In fact the organisation was based on the idea that the vast majority of judgments you can completely ignore because they possess no authoritative value and that the, the, the cases that changed law are really actually a very few number. I think that concern is, was completely valid when digital publishing wasn't a possibility and that you had to squeeze all of the common law into an annual printed volume. We don't have to do that anymore and it's possible. You're right because you don't want, you don't want to overwhelm the public with material that isn't going to be useful to them if they're using it in litigation. But we can kind of quite simply figure out ways to say, this judgment's really important because it was given by this court or because it cites these cases or because these people say it is. Um, But I don't think that necessarily prevents us from publishing everything if from a governance point of view and from the public perception point of view, that's what we decide to do. I think we can manage um, the benefits of selectivity and the needs of transparency fairly elegantly. Thanks. Uh, We've
0: got a question down Would anybody else like to go first?
3: Hi, my name's Olivia and I also work at at HMCTS. Um, I was wondering if you think that there are other harms that are not currently kind of in the public mind or the public eye or in, you know, you've talked about Computational uses and some of those that, as you said, are not necessarily actually realizable. Are there other things that are not discussed that we're missing that you think should be taken into consideration?
7: A topic that's getting a lot more discussion, certainly over the last year, but probably within the last six weeks actually, is the use of large collections of data like judgments to train very large models that are very difficult to explain and actually understand. Um, And I think that's personally, actually, if someone said, Daniel, here's the keys to all the TNA's data, probably instinctively, one of the things I'd think of, I can use this to pre-train or fine-tune a large language model. And um, I think that's one area that is now getting a lot more attention that we, we haven't really thought about. And the main risk that arises there, uh, well, two, number one, uh, the transfer of bias in the data set. Um, and the, the second is actually just explainability, being able to understand and audit why the model's doing what it's doing. So I think that's an area that requires very specific expertise to cut through and make relatable to the public because actually most researchers don't understand how these models really work either.
0: Next question. Uh, We've got one there and then we'll go to the gentleman
5: behind you next. Hi, Um, I wondered if you could speak about the uh, difference between the private Sector ownership of the information and the public sector like will publicly available. And that you're always going to have the biggest firepower financially incentivised to keep their insights private because yeah. obviously that's their like advantage from putting in all that effort into the research. So how could you basically leverage that into because you know your list of questions. Mm. A lot of that is around the art like what is even possible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, could you like, any thoughts? <laughs>
7: Um, Well, I suppose the first thing I'd say is it would be fantastic if MOJ, HMCTS and judiciary could think really carefully about levelling the data playing field because the problem that we've got that flow chart, which you like so much, um, the the problem with that flow chart is the imbalance of uh, court judgments that are moving straight into the hands of the private sector because they can afford to buy them from the transcription agencies that are impanelled under a contract that MOJ or one of, the, one of those institutions deals with. So I think you need to, I think that, I'm saying you because you're at HMCTS, that, that needs to be plugged. And I think then it's fine actually if the, the private sector are generating value on their own dime that no one gets unless people pay for it. I think that's okay. As long as there is a common foundation and a quality of data on both sides, because it's not even just about data governance, it's about a quality of arms. You know, if you're using free source of data, if you're looking for judicial review judgments, I've just showed you that there's forty five percent of the stuff that you aren't gonna see unless you have Westlaw or Lexis or VLEX, and that's wrong as well.
0: Great, thank you. Very quick question and a very quick answer. Might not be a quick
11: answer, but hopefully a quick question. So um, with the increasing number of people that are end up representing themselves in court, um, I wonder whether there's a, an imagination of how we might be able to get to a ethically sane way that someone might be able to use that data to be able to put forward a decent defence or, 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 or otherwise um, for when they're representing themselves, so a for-personal use that might involve actually scanning through the data in
7: an intelligent way yeah um short answer that's definitely something we should be striving for but i think it's a long way off because you need to to deliver that type of service you need to be able to programmatically replicate what is currently done by people Um, very trained highly expert people so um, i think that's a great use to to aim for but it's one that's going to be quite difficult to deliver
0: dan thank you very much thank you to our second Daniel and final speaker of the evening, Daniel.
11: Hello everyone, Uh, I'm Daniel Fleury, the uh, Director of Access to Justice at the Ministry of Justice. Uh, First thing I say is just thank you to, uh, thank you to Natalie, thank you to the uh, Legal Education Foundation, the IFG uh, and all those involved in this work tonight. Really fascinating to hear the conversation, the questions uh, and hopefully uh, well, I'd like, I might be getting a little ahead of myself here. I'm hoping it's going to be a bit of a crescendo, and I'll, I'll answer many of the points that have arisen tonight uh, about many of the issues uh, people have raised. So, first thing, what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to talk to you a little about the sort of the context, the journey that we in the Ministry of Justice and HMCTS have been on in terms of uh, data use and data management. Secondly, I'm going to talk a little about the governance. You know, we've heard about how we can access judgments, uh, computational analysis, what is the process, the governance around it, I'm going to say a little bit about that. And then finally, I'm going to just sort of focus a little on what this governance actually means, what it's done in practice to sort of deliver uh, a degree of increased transparency, greater access to judgments and so on. So to to begin with, if I I could just sort of start with a sort of an anecdote of, uh, well, of my career, I guess. Uh, You know, I've I've been in the justice system for 25 years and I I began life in the magistrate's court and there was a great watershed moment when I began in 1999 and that was, uh, you know, before that court data, you could find it on Bailey or the other legal publishers, but you needed to know where to look, if I'm honest. The only other source of court data was the court notice board and you'd have listings on there and you'd have... Uh, And this was the watershed moment that I encountered for the first time in 1999 you'd have something called performance data and this was considered a massive revolution at the time in the court system. You could see how long it took a case to get from X to Y and I remember it was seen as a huge thing at the time but I'm using this anecdote to illustrate how far we've come from that time in putting the, the the performance data on the notice board to where we are today. So what what did that moment mean? What does it mean for us now? It's all about transparency. And you know, when I say to ministers, or oh, well, part of my role is is policy responsibility for transparency, they say that sounds very flowery. What what on earth does that mean? Transparency to me is about improving services. It's as simple as that. And improving services for judges and lawyers in terms of navigating case law, in terms of improving services for academics and researchers to allow them to make links and insights that we haven't necessarily done so. It is improving services for civil servants uh, to make better policy, make better judgments, make better decisions. And finally, and I think critically, it really helps us improve services for those who use the courts, to you know, demystify what is, as a gentleman said about conveyancing, in some ways quite a, a mystical process, really. So that is essentially what transparency is all about. So what have we done in the last 25 years? You know, the technical red technological revolution speaks for itself, and in some ways you know I'm not saying that the government is at the forefront of that, no chance, but in some ways we have made significant changes in how we collect data and how we use data in terms of how we process data and that has got us to where we are today. Transparency is great you know you can make lots of arguments for it but the reality is we need to balance that transparency with privacy. Now when I talk to people about courts they always think oh the criminal trial But the reality is, the majority of cases going through courts are very sensitive. They're about people who are bankrupt or divorced or having their children taken away from them or their home repossessed. So the data that we hold, you know, it's in some ways quite sensitive. You know, we hold many medical records as part of court proceedings. So finding that balance between transparency and privacy is absolutely sort of critical to what we do. So how on earth do we do that? You know, we talked a little about governance tonight. In some ways, the title of my Presentation is about governance, Um, there are two things in play about uh, which allows us as policymakers to strike that balance between privacy and transparency so we have two things the first thing we have is a data access panel which some of you may be familiar with so uh, an academic will come along and say can I have you know x number of judgments or can I look at this data and this panel will consider that against a a certain criteria and make a decision or not whether to release it. Where it gets a little more complex is through the sort of senior board to that data access panel, and this is something called the senior data governance panel, uh, and this comprises it comprises myself, it comprises or uh, my co-chair is uh, Mr Justice Fraser, uh, it has people like Natalie on it, academics, researchers, Richard Suskin, so on, uh, and what it does that reports directly to the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice and it's a pretty critical board because it considers these requests, it considers issues around, well, computational analysis and so on, uh, by uh, essentially looking at it through four principles. One, you know, is it within the, uh, the legal framework, you know, is it a legal request, does it sort of comply with the law? Secondly, you know, does it support transparency, you know, does it help with understanding of the justice system? Thirdly, you know, will it maintain support public confidence in the justice system. And this is why the Ipsos-Murray Report is so important because it does give us that sort of benchmark. And then finally, uh, does it support the independence of the judiciary? So those are the four principles the panel use uh, when considering uh, applications for data. And those are the ways or the principal ways in which we try to balance that, uh, uh, that transparency with the need for privacy and sensitivity of the court data. So, you know, that sounds great. You've got a you've got a board in place. Brilliant. But what does it actually do? So sort of three things uh, or three big things, you know, the board has only been a, a recent advent. But firstly, it, it supports our work on law tech. Uh, and by law tech, you know, I've heard about uh, firms uh, looking at the sort of um, the word I'm looking for, you know, the, to see whether uh, there are appeals and immigration and asylum appeals in particular, whether you can predict outcomes by looking at certain characteristics of the cases. You know, that hasn't been something that the English and Welsh jurisdictions looked at, but I've seen firms abroad looking at those sorts of things. You know, that's what we mean by law tech. Yeah, how can we capitalise on that? What is a burgeoning industry in the UK? Secondly, data linking, Uh, researchers, academics in you may be familiar with this. Uh, We've had uh, programmes called Data First and Bold and essentially this is taking data sets uh, and linking them and looking for insights from the data set. A recent one we've done is uh, Bail Decisions and uh, uh, the um, Race of a Defendant. So looking at those, looking for new insights, using those, uh, to give, uh, well, policymakers, academics, researchers, fresh insights. And then finally, and you know, great to see it, it get a good mention, uh, the National Archives, you know, the, the whole open justice license uh, was something that was overseen by the senior data governance panel. Um, you know, and I think of what we've achieved with the National Archives. Now, of course, we had Bailey for many years before, but what is different this time round is that these judgments are in a machine readable format and they do have this open justice license. And I think this is somewhat of a watershed moment. It takes me back to my court notice board days. And I think how far we've come when I see this. Um, you know, listening to Daniel's fascinating presentation, I should probably say, we, you know, we are very much in the foothills uh, with uh, the open justice license. And, you know, the issues around computational analysis and what does independence of the judiciary and administration of justice are issues that still need to be teased out and resolved. But I think we've taken a huge step forward. And the future is, I think, very exciting when I see what we've done with the National Archives. And I'm hoping that this can continue to develop under the auspices of the senior data governance panel and really support the work that you all do, the work that judges and lawyers do, and of course, the law tech industry and others. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, to those of you watching online, you know what I'm going to say. Put your questions on the Slido. If you're not already there, it's bit.ly slash db 32 um, Let's take some questions from the room. I'm sure there are going to be plenty. Who'd like to ask the first question? I'm going to hold the silence until one of you puts your hand up. Uh, we've got one down here.
1: Daniel, thank you so much for that. Um, And it is really important to recognise that we have come a really long way and the department has come a really long way in a short space of time. Um, I think we can all see that. Um, As we enter into an environment of um, fiscal restraint, what do you see are the key challenges and opportunities for driving forward work on transparency and and what might be some of the the key barriers?
11: When you say enter a climate of financial restraint, I don't think we ever left the climate of financial restraint, Natalie. But, um, you know, what supports this work, you know, in some ways it comes back to the definition of transparency as a way to improve services. And again, sorry to come back to a personal anecdote, you know, when I began 25 years ago, data was something obscure within the civil service. It was something that, you know, wasn't necessarily adopted, whereas now, it really does drive much of policy making and ministers can see that, senior civil servants can see that. So, you know, when we are making changes, whether it's HMCTS reform or delivering or devising new policy, you know, the first question we ask ourselves nowadays is where is the data, what does the data tell us? And in some ways that really does support the investment in data technology, uh, it supports policy making, so it really is the heart of everything you know we do from a policy perspective. I want to caveat that though by saying we are not perfect by a long stretch. You know there are still significant data gaps within governments. Uh, you know we are miles away from being the finished article in terms of how we devise and develop new systems, how we use existing systems. But I think you know the climate as as, what it changed some time ago, really, that data is at the heart of much of the policy making we do. And I think, you know, the need to improve services to, you know, to meet the fiscal challenge, you know, I'd like to think those solutions will be driven by data. So, in some ways, it's almost a virtuous circle, Natalie. Thanks. Uh, I've got a question right down here at the front.
2: Um, So, you mentioned the balance between transparency and privacy. And um, one of the things that Imogen mentioned was context-specific. So, um, and of course, court data, court record data, relates to a range of contexts and different users. My question is: How would you think about determining the right balance, the proportionality of that decision, and reflecting that in government decision-making? Um, what are the mechanisms or the levers for doing that? Um, it would be really interesting to hear a bit more. About, about your
0: approach?
11: Well, in some ways, this is what our governance panels are all about. You know, we, you know, the fact that we have the senior data governance panel, which I should probably add, we hope to uh, what we call formalize, set it up on a formal footing in, in autumn of this year. is just that, you know, it's an acknowledgement by the judiciary and the government that, you know, we don't necessarily have all the answers on this. And we're reliant on the academics, the data experts and so on to tell us, to help us, to advise us where that boundary is between privacy uh, and transparency. Uh, and so, you know, in some ways, you might think this is a slight bit of a cop-out, but, you know, we're really reliant on the panel to tell us where that balance lies. Thanks, uh, I've got a question here.
4: Thank you. Uh, what are your views or the panel's view about privately held justice data? So the West Laws the Lexus's, the Mishcons who have their data sets already and whether there are any plans to put any limits like the ones you're looking at for people who want access to data now? I don't
11: think we necessarily have a view on privately held data you know our objective is to essentially to address the points that Daniel made so compellingly in his presentation that there are gaps at the moment we want to make the National Archives you know the most comprehensive the most accessible you know, the best data set there is, but, you know, we realise at the same time there is a long way to go. So whilst that is the case, you know, I don't think the government necessarily has a view on sort of wider ecosystem. You know, that's a commercial arrangement. Uh, they've shown they can make money from it. It's useful to lawyers, judges, whoever wants to access them. But, you know, at the same time, we're very keen that we provide an accessible public facing uh, arrangement, as we did with Bailey and we're doing with the National Archives. So, in, in summary, we're happy for coexistence, I think. Thanks. Next question.
0: Otherwise, otherwise you'll have... Is there a question that we can put to Daniel
6: quickly?
11: Yeah, it's difficult to police such a thing. You know, we in the courts of the Ministry of Justice, you know, we are encouraging the linking of data sets, as I said, you know, to try to make things in a suitable format where they can be linked but you know, I'm not going to pretend that you know, the data sets that we currently hold are perfect and allow you to easily do that. You know, there is still, you know, I accept your point that we are a little behind where we'd want to be, but that's not to say that we shouldn't strive to continue to improve, which I'd like to think that we are doing. Thank you, and we've got, I'm going to go to the, I saw the hand at the back first. Sorry.
2: Hi, I was just wondering, so what are the kind of next steps For you in kind of achieving these goals and where do you want to be in say two or three years time Uh,
11: well in summary the objective of the transparency is you know more transparency but you know finding that balance between privacy so you know in terms of the very practical steps i'd like to as i said before to formalize the senior data governance panel now you know, that sounds quite sort of boring and technical, but it's an important step because it will really affirm the government and the judiciary's commitment to this whole process that I've, I, I've explained tonight. Um, you know, I'd like to address many of the things in Daniel's presentation about the, the, the gaps in judgments on the National Archives, um, you know, to sort of test the parameters of the licensing arrangement with the National Archives, to sort of make it clearer, as I said, we're just in the foothills on this. But, you know, if we're really going to succeed on this, these are the things that we'll test and we expect to do so. You know, we've already started to receive many applications, you know, novel and complex applications. And I like to think the various panels will go some way to sort of, well, almost producing their own case law type on some of this uh, material that, you know, academics, researchers, anyone else can use and have confidence in, in future. But, you know, I'd like to think that we will publish more and more and be more and more accessible, greater transparency and in turn better service, better policy making, better insights, easier for judges and lawyers to use. So essentially more of, you know, more of what we're doing now, I think, is how I'd summarise it. Daniel, thank you very much indeed.
0: So a few quick final parish notices. Uh, as for those of you in the room, I'm the only thing standing between you and some drinks. Um, keep an eye on the Institute for Government website over the summer for the latest on all of the political developments which continue to develop politically. Um, the next Data will be here on Wednesday, the 7th of September. Uh, we've got another event coming up before the end of term, as it were, Jenny Harris, next uh, Thursday, a week tomorrow, from the UK Health Security Agency. We'll be doing an in-conversation event here at the IFG. Um, all it remains for me to say are some very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you in the audience, I think some really brilliant questions this evening, which prompted some great discussion, so thank you for that. Um, A huge thank you to the Legal Education Foundation um, for uh, sponsoring another brilliant event. And do check out Databyte 6 as well. That was also a cracker. Um, And in a moment, um, I'll ask you to uh, join me in a round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Um, All that remains for me to say before we do that is um, have a wonderful summer, whether you're joining us online or here in the building. In the words of the Prime Minister, hasta la vista, baby. (laughs) And join me in thanking our fantastic speakers. Thank you very much,